This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. By the numbers, the U.S. is home to just over 331 million Americans a population that is growing, but at the slowest rate since the 1930s. The South and West continue to see the greatest gain in population, as well as the congressional representation that comes with it, at the expense of the Northeast and the Midwest, with Texas gaining two seats, Florida one, and California, long a leader in population growth, actually losing a seat for the first time in history. In all, 13 states will see changes, just ahead, we'll talk to Reed Epstein. He is covering the census story for the New York Times. And later, David Wasserman. He is the House editor for the Cook Political Report, who will break down the redistricting politics. But first, Ron Jarman. He is the acting director of the U.S. Census Bureau. Overall, the effect of the official 2020 uh, census population counts on congressional apportionment is a shift of seven seats among 13 states which is the smallest number of seats shifting among the states in any decade since the current method of calculating apportionment was adopted in 1941. Six states will gain seats in the House of Representatives. Texas will gain two seats, and Colorado, Florida, Montana, North Carolina, and Oregon will each gain one seat. Seven states will each lose one seat in the House. California, Illinois, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. The number of seats for the remaining 37 states will not change. That from the acting director of the U.S. Census Bureau, Reed Epstein is campaigns and elections reporter for the New York Times. He has been looking at the numbers. And let me begin with the big picture. What do the numbers tell you about the population trends in the United States? Uh, well, they tell you that the, the United States is growing slower than it had been before. Uh, the rate of growth, population growth, was slower since, than it had been since the 1930s during the midst of the Great Depression. Uh, and it tells you that the population, uh, the center, population center of the country is moving farther south and west uh, as it has in the last few census cycles. Uh, there are more seats. Uh, once again, seats uh, were lost in states like Pennsylvania, New York, and Illinois, sort of old industrial Midwest and Northeast states uh, and states in the south and west, Florida, Texas, uh, Colorado and Oregon uh, and Montana gain seats. And so uh, we have seen that been going on. We've seen that trend going on for decades now as the country moves uh, away from uh, sort of its its traditional and long ago centers of power as, as people as population growth uh, elsewhere outpaces that in in the Northeast and Midwest. And as you know, based on the reporting, uh, not only from you, but your colleagues at the New York Times, initially a sense that uh, perhaps 17 or 18 states could see some significant changes. But according to the latest numbers, only 13. What do you attribute that to? Well, 
Yeah, we well, were talking about changes in congressional apportionment. Uh, the Census Bureau's projections uh, that they had made based on surveys uh, over the last 10 years turned out not to be uh, – they turned out to have more discrepancy with the projections and the final numbers than what we were used to from the Census Bureau. Uh, and it's not clear quite why that is. Uh, it may be uh, because of the pandemic made it harder to count people. It may be because – the Trump administration was seen as hostile towards the census, particularly hostile towards uh, people of color uh, and Hispanic uh, communities in the census. The, we don't really know. Uh, and we may never know. Uh, we'll probably know a little bit more in late September when the Census Bureau releases uh, demographic and block by block data that shows us precisely where people live and, and where uh, people in different demographics live in the country. Uh, but at the moment, you know, all we have are the state population totals, which uh, in we're, we're short of expectations in places like Arizona, Florida and Texas and uh, slightly above expectations in places like New York and New Jersey. When that new data is made available in September, what will you be looking for? What is what sparks your curiosity? Well, it'll be really fascinating to see, uh, particularly in, in a state like Texas, uh, where the population growth has been. You know, we, we know generally that cities like Houston and Austin and Dallas are booming. Uh, a lot of people have moved to Texas. Essentially, Texas over the last 10 years has added the population of Connecticut uh, inside its borders. And where and we know that, uh, that the preponderance of those people are moving to the cities. And so what, where precisely that population is will have a long way to go toward where new congressional seats are drawn. Uh, and as we've seen in the last couple uh, election cycles in this country, how you vote, there's a big correlation between where you live uh, and how you vote. And if more voters uh, in in cities and suburbs uh, would tend to be advantageous for Democrats. Uh, you know, However, uh, as we know, the Texas state government, state legislature and governor are controlled by the Republican Party. And they're certain to draw district lines to be uh, most ad- the most advantageous district lines for Republicans that they can. Reed Epstein, let me turn from the politics to the process, because from NYTimes.com, there is this, quote, the numbers, the census numbers, the product of the most embattled process in decades. Can you explain? Well, over the last couple of years of the Trump administration, when they were responsible for the census, uh, we saw a number of things happen that uh, that were seen in many circles as an attack on the census. Uh, the Trump administration tried to add a citizenship question to the census, uh, which was perceived as something that would that would depress Hispanic turnout, uh, particularly among non-citizens. And the census is not is a constitutional requirement not to count not just citizens but uh but all people who live in this country uh and it and by having even a discussion over that question which was eventually thrown out in court uh it was seen as repelling some hispanic some hispanic response to the census uh whether that happened or not we we don't know yet we'll find out we'll get more clues certainly in september um, but that was a, that was a big part of it. Uh, and you know, the Trump administration was also accused in many circles as you know, not having the best and brightest census 
officials on the case, uh, you know, along not just with not only did the Trump administration uh, not press the census the way that past presidential administrations have, but you saw Republican governors in key states not invest the sort of resources and energy toward getting people counted uh, as you saw in Democratic states. Uh, you know, for instance, California spent nearly $200 million trying to count all of its residents for the census. New York City alone spent $40 million. Uh, but the state of Arizona spent a million and a half dollars. Florida spent uh, virtually nothing. Uh, Texas spent $15 million, but only in September, well after the census count had already begun. So do you think, looking over the next 20 to 30 years, that uh, the United States is entering a period that we could see a substantially lower population growth? Uh, well, that depends. Uh, you know, the, the population growth of the last 10 years was is chalked up to, in part, uh, economic recession of 2008, uh, slower rates of immigration. Uh, uh, and that's, you know, those are... Those are variables that are subject to change, certainly. Uh, we don't know what the economic look at, uh, economic uh, picture is going to be for the next 10 years. We don't know what immigration policies are going to be for the next 10 years. Typically, when the economy does better in this country, there's more, uh, more immigration to it. Uh, but we'll see what the policies of uh, the Biden and future administrations look like over the 2020s. So to that point, with a population now approaching 332 million Americans, what questions remain unanswered in your mind? Well, the census questions, the the big questions are within a lot of these states uh, in where, like we talked about, Texas, Florida is another big uh, question. Florida is going to be gaining a seat in Congress. Uh, where in Florida that seat goes uh, will be critical to to which party controls the seat. The, there's an expectation from a lot of people in Florida that it will need to be uh, in the Tampa, Orlando area in central Florida, just because that's where the state has seen the most population growth. Um, but again, Republicans there also control the process. And so we will see uh, where they draw the lines. And uh, frankly, there's a number of states with uh, – where the redistricting process is going to be very closely watched this fall uh, because control of the next Congress will depend uh, in part based on what the new lines look like and which party uh, has the advantage in more seats. And finally, as you looked at these numbers when they first came out, did anything surprise you? Well, you know, I was surprised that the, that the numbers didn't meet the projections, frankly. Um, we thought there would be more seats moving from the Northeast and Midwest to the South and, and West. Uh, the, the projections suggested that Florida would add two seats and Texas would add three and Arizona would add one uh, for a shift of six from the Midwest and Northeast to the South and West. And, and the shift wound up being half of that, three seats. Uh, and so that that is a big difference when it comes to uh, not just congressional representation, but the electoral college counts over the next 10 years. Uh, and frankly, what the amount of uh, the amount of resources and political power that those states have in the Congress. Reed Epstein, he has been crunching the numbers. His work available at nytimes.com. Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you, Steve. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to C-SPAN's podcast, The Weekly. Our focus, the census numbers and the politics of congressional redistricting. David Wasserman is the House Editor for the Cook Political Report. I began our conversation by asking him to break down what the numbers mean specifically for the two political parties. In partisan terms, at the presidential level, it means that President Biden would have won with three fewer electoral college votes had the 2020 election taken place under the the new reapportionment. In redistricting terms for Congress, it's much more complicated because uh, the fact that New York is losing a seat uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it's a loss for House Democrats uh, because New York is a Democratic state. Or the fact that Minnesota kept a seat uh, and avoided losing one, uh, it's not necessarily good news for Democrats just because they're dominant uh, or, or won Minnesota. These redistricting fights are going to play out in state legislatures, in courts, uh, in commissions, some of which are new and uh, and untested. And so we won't really know the net effect from this shift of seven seats until the detailed data starts coming out in the fall. But we are, as you have pointed out, moving from the frost belt to the sun belt in terms of demographics and population shifts. So what does that tell you? Well, that's a continuation of a long-term trend, of course, from uh, the Frost Belt to the Sun Belt and West. But there was a smaller shift than uh, has been the case in the past. Only seven seats changed across state lines. And most demographers were expecting a larger seat shift based on the census estimates. The fact that Florida and Texas gained fewer seats than we expected and that Arizona didn't gain a seat at all has raised concerns on the part of advocacy groups and uh, and others who uh, cautioned that there might be a Latino undercount in this census and that perhaps uh, some immigrant-heavy areas of the country uh, had a lower count than population estimates suggested. If that's true, when we look at the detailed data that comes out in August and September, then that could be bad news for Democrats, because keep in mind, they represent most of the districts with large Hispanic populations. And that includes districts in California and Texas and and elsewhere. As you have also pointed out, among the biggest wild cards, New York and Ohio. Explain. So New York and Ohio both implemented reforms that were passed by voters uh, and they were intended to reduce the the power of the legislature in redistricting, but they haven't been tested. And it's possible that the supermajority of Republicans in Ohio and the supermajority of Democrats in the New York legislature could overrule uh, the intent of the reform. In Ohio, uh, the reform specifies that the parties in the legislature or on a backup commission have to reach a certain threshold of consensus to pass a map that's valid for the next 10 years. And if they deadlock, 
then the legislature can pass along party lines a plan that's valid for only four years. So after all this wrangling, you know, it, it, it could be possible that Republicans draw effectively another gerrymander uh, to replace the one that they drew in 2011. Uh, in New York State, Democrats could conceivably overrule the new commission that's in place. And after it rejects two plans proposed by the commission, Democrats could conceivably draw a map that expands the number of seats they have in that state. And they may come under heavy pressure to do so because Republicans are likely to draw advantageous maps in other states like Florida, Texas, Georgia, North Carolina. So this could turn into an arms race. Well, let me take that one step further. And of course, we hear the term gerrymandering every 10 years. What makes a congressional district a gerrymandered state? And where did that come from? Well, it came from the early 19th century and a salamander-shaped district uh, that uh, benefited the party of of Governor Elbridge Gerry in Massachusetts. And ever since, we've struggled to define what constitutes a gerrymander. We should should actually say gerrymander. But the broad or the most commonly accepted definition is the political manipulation of district boundaries to achieve uh, certain aims, usually a partisan advantage. But uh, racial gerrymandering has also been the subject of of many lawsuits in the past uh, couple decades, and it'll continue to be. the reality is it's easy to to hate on gerrymandering, but very difficult to solve because there's no one commonly accepted metric uh, to determine uh, what the definition of obscenity is in redistricting. So courts are going to have to make some judgment calls, but we don't have a one-size-fits-all standard in the country. And uh, groups have different priorities that that sometimes conflict. Uh, some reform groups want to maximize the number of competitive districts. Others, uh, other reforms, such as the one in California, prohibit commissions or map drawers from taking partisanship into account entirely. And then, of course, there is always a push for majority-minority districts, and that's going to be a flashpoint, again, particularly in the South. But David Wasserman, one of those metrics can be seen in Iowa, where a commission basically draws the maps to try to take the politics out of that. How unique is that process? So Iowa employs a bureaucratic agency, a state agency called the Legislative Services Agency, to draft plans that avoid splitting counties. Uh, Usually they're really nice and neat plans, and they are subject to an up up or down vote of uh, the legislature. We've never really seen the legislature reject, uh, you know, multiple plans submitted by uh, that uh, bureaucratic agency. But this time, Republicans do control state government in Iowa, and it is possible that if uh, the bureaucrats come up with something they don't like, they could, uh, you know, reject it or or do something else. And it's also kind of a, a myth that other states could easily adopt what Iowa does. Keep in mind that Iowa is a largely white state without uh, many considerations for uh, you know, minority districting or representation. It's also got square counties that are easy to uh, kind of 
building block shape into districts. And not all states are that convenient. In a lot of places, uh, you know, counties have, are split many different directions to achieve population equality. And keep in mind that the Supreme Court jurisprudence basically requires that districts be within one person of each other, which means that uh, the consultants drawing maps in both states are vigorously trying to identify census blocks that will get them to exact population. Let me remind our listeners that our guest on C-SPAN's The Weekly is the House editor for the Cook Political Report, David Wasserman. As you look at the current makeup of this Congress, how many were around 10 years ago when redistricting was last put in place? Only about 36 percent of this Congress was around for the last round of redistricting. So many members are in for a rude awakening. And of course, they know it's going to happen, but they don't know in some cases whether they're going to have to run against another incumbent or run in a drastically altered seat. And Republicans need five seats. uh, They need to pick up five seats to retake the House majority next year. It's possible that they could gain all five of those seats from redistricting alone before you even consider the impact of the political environment next year. So this is going to be uh, something the parties are immersed in and, and fighting tooth and nail in every state where there, there is some uncertainty about what the lines will look like. So let's break it down even further. For example, California losing a seat. Colorado gaining a seat. How does that process work in those two respective states? Well, both of them are commission states, and California established its independent redistricting commission uh, in 2011 for the first time. Uh, Colorado is new for this round, and they are a bit different. California uh, has a 14-member citizen commission that is prohibited from taking into account things like partisanship and where incumbents live. And they have a lot of public hearings and uh, have to come up with a map that a certain number of of commissioners agree upon. Uh, Colorado is similar, but there is a a provision that encourages competitive districts. Um, One of the reasons why that's important is because Colorado is gaining an eighth district this time around. And it's quite possible that the commission will draw it to be a fair fight district uh, for the parties to co- compete in, uh, either in northern Colorado uh, or in the, the southern Denver suburbs. California has to access seat, and that can be a painful process. Based on most estimates, we expect that Los Angeles County, uh, because it's grown so slowly, will be the place that loses a seat. Uh, Democrats could resolve that game of musical chairs if one of the uh, one of their members retires and there actually are four democrats from LA county who are over 80 years old did it surprise you that montana is actually gaining a seat regaining the seat it once had we've expected montana to be on the bubble for some time and it did just barely make it it gained uh, a second seat and i think part of the reason why montana gained a seat and Rhode Island avoided losing a seat was that uh, there was a lower population count in some Sunbelt states than we expected. But in Montana, uh, there actually were two districts as recently as 1993. And uh, 
there is a redistricting commission that's bipartisan in Montana. It's likely that this, that the two seats will be drawn, uh, one in the east and one in the west. Democrats are hoping that the western one is competitive because it would probably include Missoula and uh, perhaps Bozeman. But uh, even so, uh, Republicans do have an advantage in that state. And as you point out, Texas gaining two, but but almost gained a third seat. So Texas clearly the biggest winner in terms of the new census numbers and what it means for House seats. That's true. It's going to 38 House seats and 40 electoral votes. And Republicans did hold the state House in the 2020 elections. And so they'll get to draw the map. And they are likely to award both of the state's new districts to heavily uh, Republican areas. Now, uh, what's interesting about Texas is a lot of the growth has come in kind of the Austin-San Antonio uh, corridor, the, the I-35 corridor. And it's possible that Republicans will actually draw a solid Democratic seat in the middle of Austin to make surrounding districts redder, uh, safer, because a lot of those districts have have you know become more competitive and Republicans don't want to lose them in the next 10 years. Uh, but to offset that, Republicans could also uh, decide to axe uh, a, a Democratic district in the Rio Grande Valley where we've seen some movement towards Republicans. There's a big surge in support for Trump between 2016 and 2020 in South Texas. And so it's possible one of those Hispanic districts could be redrawn in a way that's much friendlier to Republicans and conveniently for Republicans. One uh, incumbent Democrat, Philemon Vela, from the Brownsville area has already said he's retiring. Two different states, both with Democratic governors in the Northeast, both losing a seat. As you look at Pennsylvania and New York, what's going to happen? Uh, Pennsylvania is one of the few states uh, with split control, one of six states, actually. The Democrat uh, is the governor. Uh, Republicans control the state legislature. And so this process is likely to go to the courts because uh, there's a minimal chance that the parties will arrive at any kind of agreement. And Pennsylvania is losing a seat. Uh, this was a, a place where Democrats notched a big court victory in 2018 uh, when the state Supreme Court threw out the Republican-drawn map on the grounds that uh, it was that it contradicted the state constitution in, in its uh, partisan advantage for Republicans. So uh, at the beginning of the, of the last decade, Pennsylvania had 13 Republican House members and five Democrats. Uh, today, it's split 9-9. And uh, Democrats are optimistic that the state Supreme Court will redraw the districts in a way that uh, uh, eliminates one Republican seat. But it's also possible that uh, that a few Democratic seats could be could uh, get more rural and more tenuous for the party to hold. So it's unclear which side is is going to end up losing that district out of Pennsylvania. New York is really one of the big wild cards. Uh, As I mentioned, the uh, Democrats in the New York legislature could potentially overrule a commission that has started out looking quite dysfunctional. And uh, a number of people are are saying uh, that the commission – uh, was almost set up to fail and and to give Democrats the chance to to redraw uh, the line. 
it's possible the Democrats could draw a map that gives them as many as 23 of the state's 26 districts. And they may have to do that to hold on to any hope of, of controlling the House if Republicans draw aggressive maps in, in other states. So the net effect of all of this is that we're likely to see blue states' delegations get even bluer and red states' delegations get even redder. That makes the prospect of, of bipartisan relationships uh, in the House much more challenging. Another state losing one seat is Ohio, and I want to ask you about the politics of that with Congressman Tim Ryan announcing that he is running for the U.S. Senate. Of course, he represents Mahoning County, Youngstown, Ohio. What does that mean in terms of how the state looks at the delegation? So Democrats believe that uh, it can't get worse than than it already is in Ohio for for them. Uh, Right now, Republicans have a 12 to 4 House seat advantage, and that has held up throughout uh, some very good Democratic years in 2018, especially. And Republicans uh, believe that this new reform uh, will lead to a stalemate and that they'll be able to draw a map that's valid for four years. And that if they get their way, they could turn Tim Ryan's district into a Republican seat. Uh, After all, the Mahoning Valley has uh, trended very strongly to the right. And in fact, uh, Mahoning County was one of the, the few counties that Trump flipped from blue to red between 2016 and 2020. Uh, they could also take a look at uh, re- reshaping Marcy Captor's district, uh, which is anchored by Toledo, but um, has been <laughs> pejoratively nicknamed the mistake by the lake because it, it very narrowly hugs uh, the uh, Lake Erie shoreline. Uh, and uh, that district could, could also be axed or, or converted into a much more Republican seat. So Democrats are going to be suing against what Republicans do in a lot of states, including possibly Ohio. They hope that the Ohio Supreme Court would be a backstop against that kind of aggression. But uh, we can't be sure what'll happen. New Hampshire, first in the nation presidential primary, a Republican governor, two Democratic House seats. What's going to happen in the Granite State? Yeah, this was one of the few uh, surprises on election night in, in state legislative races. Republicans managed to wrest back control of the New Hampshire House and Senate, in part because of the coattails of Governor Chris Sununu, who's pretty popular. So they'll get to redraw the line. And I, I say the line as opposed to lines because New Hampshire has two districts. So uh, the, the uh, structure in New Hampshire going back you know, uh, more than a century has been for the state's districts to be divided between Manchester and, and Nashua. Uh, so as it, it was originally done to split up the, the Catholic Democratic vote in the state, now Republican strategy could be to pack Manchester, Nashua, and a lot of the Democratic towns in western New Hampshire, like Keene and Hanover, into one district to try and make one of the two districts winnable for Republicans. Uh, Keep in mind that Democrats hold both House seats now. So as tiny as it is, that's going to be a flashpoint. 
Let me conclude with this. Obviously, a 50-50 Senate, a very narrow Democratic majority for the Democrats in the House, and a country that seems to be evenly divided. So with the backdrop of these new census numbers, what's the politics going to be like in the coming months and years as we look at these new new seats, new districts? Well, the, the trend in the past few years has been that suburban seats, especially in the Sun Belt, have become more competitive. And you've also had a number of um, Hispanic seats and um, very uh, formerly union stronghold Democratic seats look more competitive as well. The parties are going to try and retrench these districts in the places they have control. And that could have the effect of reducing the number of competitive seats and uh, shifting even more emphasis to party primaries. Uh, that's not especially productive for uh, for prospects of bipartisanship. And uh, keep in mind that Republicans still control uh, redistricting in states totaling 187 seats, Democrats only 75, commissions 121, 46 uh, seats are in split states. So, you know, there's there's really going to be, uh, I think, a divide between states that are commission drawn and states that were drawn by the political parties and uh, members of Congress who uh, are successful and in, uh, in working across the aisle or have some incentive to do so are more likely to come from those commission states. David Wasserman, he serves as the House editor for the Cook Political Report. Thanks very much for your time, your expertise, and for breaking down the numbers and what it all means. We appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Steve. And a reminder, this podcast is available wherever you get your favorite podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.